In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. Laura Fortas started her career doing market research for Fortune 500 companies. After many years of high-end research, she developed a passion for helping small businesses, entrepreneurs, and startups. She has extensive experience in CPG, food, beverage, cannabis, the better for you category, and app development for clients. Laura has a strong reputation for outside-the-box strategic thinking and problem-solving skills. And welcome to the People Catalyst podcast, Laura Fortis. Hi there. Hello, all the way from Denver, Colorado, right? Did I get that right? Yes. Okay, yeah. that was my memory from the last I'm time. I'm Broomfield, right between Denver and Boulder. Very, what a gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world. I, um, the best skiing ever is, is in that area. Oh yeah. I actually, I'm embarrassed to say that I have not been taking advantage of the mountains and I haven't been skiing, but I love Colorado. I moved here in 2018 from California and, and it's a, it's a completely different climate and I'm really enjoying it. Yes. I just, uh, spent a week at Estes Park this last summer and oh, it was it was probably one of my favorite vacations. So it's definitely a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, part of the world. So I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about here uh, today, which it's really cool, uh, Laura, that somebody is excited about market research, right? Because it's this critical aspect of marketing. And we need to understand uh, consumer insights and, you know, you being a research strategist that a lot of times business owners jump over this aspect before they actually start talking about their marketing strategy and then rolling out the marketing plan. I mean, really, this is kind of the nucleus of all of those things that you need to have in the data and information uh, to be able to then market your business. So, uh, first of all, I always like to ask the question, um, in regards to your entrepreneurial uh, past, like how did you get here? How did you end up getting passionate about market research and then ultimately uh, creating your own business? Uh, well, you know, market research definitely wasn't one of those. When I grow up, I want to be a market researcher. You know, it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah, I not don't think they had that one in kindergarten. Career right? paths. Um, but I did end up going into market research um, and uh, pursuing that. I started in 1996 after I went to grad school and um, started out at a focus group facility and training and uh, worked for market research agencies that cater to Fortune 500 companies for most of my career. And then in 2013, um, you know, I guess my version of a midlife crisis, I decided that, you know, um, I really am not so into just focusing on Fortune 500 companies and um, big organizations. What I, what I really care about and what I'm passionate about is helping entrepreneurs and more specifically making it clear that market research doesn't have to be super expensive and mm -hmm. there is a middle ground between $15,000 for a project and you know the the $30 version of SurveyMonkey and such you know there's a <laughs> whole middle ground 
that that is affordable and that delivers return on investments and most small businesses and even medium-sized businesses don't think that it's affordable or accessible to them mm -hmm. so they keep doing their marketing and throwing spaghetti at the wall and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work but they never take a chance to pause and look at who is my target customer is that assumption accurate how can I understand their pain points so I can make sure that I'm meeting their evolving changing needs and have my product or service and its message and messaging uh, marketing materials sales materials reflect that and in an optimized way so that I can do things smarter and not just in greater volumes yeah I love that and you know the big thing about marketing and market research that is so critical is that you can't change the market, right? The market is the market. So all mm -hmm. you can do is meet the market where it's at. And I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, they have this passion right around, oh, I want to do this. So mm -hmm. can you share, I know you're laughing because it's true, right? Yes, yes, it is can very you share, true. share with us why that is a completely bad idea. Now, you have to have your passion overlap your market. And by the way, a lot of times you can align it, align it with something, but it might not be what you think. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about either a story with that or even starting out with a big picture of, you know, it's not like, you want to be passionate about what you're doing, but you also want to make sure it's aligned with a market or a specific demographic instead of just going, oh, I'm passionate about this, so I'm going to put my, you know, um, open a, a business or I'm going to start an online marketing, you know, fill in the blank. And they haven't done that market research and how that is just a completely bad idea. Yeah, well, what's what's really painful is when you see someone that is so passionate about something and those th that passion is fueled not only internally, but by their family, by their friends, by by the people in their orbit. Then they and give so, them money. Yes. So <laughs> then, then those people invest money and support them. And the person, you know, maybe quits their job and dumps their life savings into something. And it's only after that that they discover that while their idea was a good idea, it wasn't um, profitable. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be something people pay for. Sure. Everybody loves Aunt Becky, you know, Aunt Becky's carrot cake. And, you know, people will come from near and far and look forward to it and say, you know, you should sell this. And then Aunt Becky decides, yeah, I'm going to have Aunt Becky's cake shop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, you know, and then when she gets into it, she realizes that everyone loves her product. But that doesn't mean that they're willing to pay what it costs to make that product, let alone in the frequency and at the volumes. So mm -hmm. you see a lot of um, very passionate, well-intentioned people in food service-related um, businesses. Which is one um, of the hardest businesses to, well, I know this because my background's in finance. Restaurants are one of the most challenging, and anything food-related, uh, uh, it's like a t-shirt company, right? You better done your market research, know exactly who's going to where whatever it is that you're creating. So it's mm -hmm. interesting you say that, that you see that with um, oh, yeah. with types of food. So could you give us a real life example without sure. obviously stating any names yeah. or? Yeah, I, um, I did some work for a beef jerky 
um, entrepreneur, very well-intentioned, um, very passionate, great idea. Uh, beef jerky that was free of the uh, sugars, additives, and preservatives, and also had a different texture, a kind of um, softer bite to the texture than the, you know, typical ropey, you know, rip your teeth out beef jerky. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that sounds like an awesome idea. You know, who it does actually, something? that sounds pretty good. I'm kind of a beef jerky connoisseur. It sounds, it sounds really great. And that's, it's so hard to find one that doesn't have those things. Yes. Right. And um, so there, you know, there were some hypotheses that, that I had in the back of my mind. And over the years, I've discovered that just because I think it doesn't mean it's true or it's going to bear out in the market. And, you know, I try to convey that to entrepreneurs and startups. Um, And it turns out, like I had hypothesized that the people who come to beef jerky like that chewiness, but it turns out that the, the texture was very appealing. The idea free of sugar was very appealing. What was discovered is that people don't weren't going to buy in the frequency and volume that was needed to sustain a beef jerky company and because of the lack of preservatives it would have a shorter shelf life so things like distribution that consumers don't even get into was going to become an issue so that that product hasn't gone away but it's definitely on hold while he course corrects and figures out how can I leverage what through this market research I discovered to be the most salient benefits, the difference in texture, absence of sugar, absence of artificial preservatives with the differentiating element being the texture in this case. But in And how powerful is that information? I mean, instead of, spending all that money, you know, running around town trying to sell your beef jerky, right? Mm-hmm. And identifying that and solving the problem before you're spending the money. Yes. And it also has to do with, as we know in life, in our personal and professional lives, managing expectations. People liked the idea of a di- differentiated texture, but most people who buy beef jerky have an expectations of that texture. So even though the people surveyed happened to like the softer texture there. It, it wasn't a match with their expectations. So then you have to look at market research on the packaging and the messaging so that people know that it's going to be a softer, chewier product before they taste it. Because we've all had that experience where maybe we've picked up the drink, a different drink or our friends, you know, my, my husband's drink and, it looked like coffee, but it was Diet Coke. And it's not that I have anything against Diet Coke, but when you're expecting coffee. No, but it hits you really yeah. quickly when you're just like, so, whoa. Yeah, so. Because your expectation was it was going to taste like one thing and it tasted completely exactly. different. Exactly. And so there are a lot of nuances to it. And the problem that I see besides the initial feedback is someone says, well, like, I'm going to do market research. I'm going to take my free survey monkey. Um, account and I'm going to design a survey. Maybe I'll even use one of their templates, which suck by the way. And um, I'm going to put it on my post by uh, I'm going to post on my Facebook page or um, some social media feed. And then I have a survey, but they don't have the expertise to know the importance of sampling. So not only do they get data that's bad or flawed and um, can give them misinformation, they don't know that. So then they end Mm -hmm. up, making decisions, often very expensive decisions, 
based on faulty data and they don't even know that they're doing it. So mm -hmm. I try to stress the importance that there are some things that I can help empower people to do themselves, but for the most part, it tends to be a short-sighted savings by not having some level of experience and expertise in it. Because if you have your data and it's all from your, the people in what I call your immediate orbit, your friends, your family, people who know your friends and family, there's going to be a commonality to them that's not going to be representative enough to extrapolate and make decisions to your greater uh, target population. So that's a common misstep for small businesses. Um, I'm really big on the importance of differentiating. Um, I do a lot of work actually in the cannabis space and in the CBD space, and there's tons of companies also in you know, CPG, uh, consumer packaged goods companies, tons of them. And there can be lots of good products, and it's not so much about being the better or the best, because a lot of times that's very subjective, but it's about what are your key points of differentiation, or we talk about the USP, the unique selling proposition, that are going to help you stand out on a competitive landscape and help you succeed, so that you can play into not just the, the product or service itself, but how you're going to market that product or service. Yeah, think about blue ocean strategies, right? I mean, if you go back and read that book, it clearly defines if you want to take a huge market share, you have to have a be different. I mean, that's what you're talking about, the differentiating factor between you and everybody else. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, people always talk about the cliche, if you're old enough to remember, um, VHS tape, um, DVDs and Betamax and all that kind of stuff. Like everyone said that Beta, Betamax, that, that was a superior product, but they didn't do as good a job of making it into the market and eventually they went away in VHS. At that point. That's a great example. Um, and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, happens all the time. It's not, you can't put all of your passion and energy and money into the product or service without thinking about how you're going to market it and manage the financial aspects of running a business. Absolutely. And going back to the sampling, because I, I kind of chuckled when you said the um, not only SurveyMonkey, but then you put it out to, you know, your your orbit, as you would say. But I would guess that when you even do a, a, a sampling that's not, right, you're doing the typical, uh, the market research like you do, I'm sure that there's sometimes, don't you have to weight the data even with that, with the correct sampling? Like, there's got to be some things that people report on. I know this just because we've got a, a, a validated assessment, but it's just somebody's mood can change kind of how they answer that data. How do you, when you have that, how do you weight data sometimes? Or give us an example, might be a little easier thing to do. Like, you know, with the beef jerky, I'm sure people... Well, know. it's, yeah, like self-reported, when you ask someone about what they intend to do or would do, like how much would you pay for this jerky? Um, how often would you buy this jerky? Um, you've got to take that with a grain of salt um, because people tend to over-report what they're willing to spend and over-report how much they're, and how frequently they're going to spend on something. And then there are certain I want to say cultural factors that sometimes play into research. I have a pretty heavy background in multi-ethnic research, and um, 
we used to joke, um, and I was the only non-Hispanic at this particular company, that there's a Hispanic positivity bias. Like Hispanics in general <laughs> tend to say nicer and kinder things, and then I happen to be Jewish members of my tribe. We've got, you know, the negativity bias. Like there's well, that's hilarious. I could totally see that. Well, just because of your cultural yeah. background, you're going to see things differently, right? It's just the lens by which, you know, it's nature and nurture, yeah. and, right? And, you know, and I hate, you know, I hate to use the word stereotype at all, but, you know, it does become a joke that there are just certain cultures, certain ways genders speak, certain ages, like, uh, you know, my my husband might say, oh, that's not bad. Well, that's code for it's excellent, whereas I'm a literalist. You know, to me, not bad, that's not a very good endorsement. Mediocre. Yeah, so for, for some people, not bad is sort of synonymous with good. So you have to choose your language very appropriately. You have a big problem in surveys, and I was just talking about this with a market researcher who should – who I would have hoped would know better is that people ask questions that people aren't qualified to answer because of the um, answer choices available presuppose something like which brand of athletic wear do you like best? Lululemon, uh, Nike, Adidas, uh, you know, or what, whatever a fourth one might be if they're there have a fourth option. Well, that presupposes that, one of those fours is their favorite. Now, if you asked it of among the choices you have, which would be your preferred, that would make sense. But people tend to ask it like a beauty contest, like, which do you, you know, which is your favorite? You know, like that presupposes you have a finite list of everything that could be someone in the universe's favorite. And that almost is never the case. Um, and, and when you, and when you have that and you're doing those questions, I know sometimes, and it depends on, you know, what market research is being done and, and why, how do you manage having, you know, the other box, right? Because one of these interesting things I was working with, with a gentleman who uh, was really high up in um, the California um, legislature, and he would say that when they were doing research before they were working with, you know, candidates, um, and he wasn't exactly a lobbyist, but he knew the landscape extremely well. He would say that that other box often with constituents brought out so many more things because if you only gave them, you know, certain answers, but it was their biggest concern was the, you know, um, electrical PG&E lines mm -hmm. that were behind whatever in this particular area, that they often found out other very unique things by asking that either open-ended or other-based question, but how do you manage that data? Yeah, that, I mean, that has changed over the last 20 years, the way in which we use what's called, you know, the, the other box or open-ended questions with a, an open-ended um, data. Uh, I was always very big on open-ended questions and these sort of other specify option because, you know, theoretically, it makes sense. Of course, you're going to get um, unprompted answers that could be much more illuminating. The problem is in, a, in the survey world, that's a big pain in the butt and you have to get into coding and other things um, that are complicated and thus 
expensive and put you at, you know, higher risk of kind of making a misstep because it's not. That's exactly why I was asking the question, Laura, <laughs> because I was like, okay, it seems like it'd be a good idea, but it, it you know, if you're managing thousands of responses, then how do you actually scrape the data? Yeah, I mean, if you, there, there are creative ways. Like if, for instance, it's a one word answer, then you can do what's called a word cloud and things pop. But if you get into anything like sentences or phrases, then it becomes a hot mess. So what I've changed to doing over time is taking, um, taking a pause and doing focus groups or in-depth interviews or some sort of qualitative research. The reason being is that you can solicit feedback from which you can narrow the scope of your questions and you can fill in most of the likely responses. And then when you have an other specify, you have a smattering of options instead of this unwieldy amount of options. Got it. So you can kind of narrow the, the, the focus a bit initially before you do that. And how do you put those focus groups together, by the way? Um, it depends what they're comprised of. Like if I'm doing um, consumer focus groups and it's a general pop, uh, general population type of a, uh, a product that's very easy to get people to participate in. And especially in this age of COVID, it's actually been really a, a boon to that aspect of my business because people are much more available and much more willing to give you their time and charge less for doing it in the case of incentivizing people. Um, but there are all sorts of, for, for qualitative, for focus groups and in-depth interviews, there are ways of uh, getting people. Now, when it's general population, it's very easy. When you have a project like I've had where you're looking for Hispanics with plaque psoriasis that's not being treated with injectables in Houston, you know, then that. You just made my, like, I was like, what? Yeah, no, that, then, you, then you've got to get like 29 vendors and coordinate that. And then you have like, I do like PTSD from the difficulty of finding these needles in the haystack. But it is doable with the amount of, you know, with the right time, money and persuasion. Um, I'm a kind of make it happen person. And I, and I can do that. Oh, I hadn't noticed, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I will find it. If it is there, I will find it. Um, and I will make it, make it happen somehow. Um, but, uh, you know, more typically, like right now I'm doing interviews with bud tenders, which for people who don't know, those are the people who are the uh, sales associates at cannabis dispensaries, either, you know, medical or recreational. And there tend to be industry associations or organizations where they gather and I can get it that way. For um, something that's really diverse, there's, there are different companies that specialize in different types of populations, whether that be people with medical conditions, high net worth investors, whatever it is. And over 20 years, you know, I, I kind of know who to go to. For surveys, what, what they do is they do use things called panels, which are um, companies where they've had people opt into uh, take surveys for points or money or, you know, relatively small amounts of compensation, but it does add up and it's an innocuous way to make a little extra money. The problem with them is that a lot of people don't pay much attention when they're taking surveys. And mm -hmm. I've had this hypothesis for a while that the percentage of people who are 
not reading surveys is higher than uh, companies are reporting. So I actually just recently, and I hope the vendor I use isn't hearing this, or maybe I do care that they should hear this. Um, I actually put in at a third of the way through the survey and a two-thirds of the way through the survey, kind of not a trick question. I'm very upfront. Like in this case, I asked a question uh, to test if you are reading this survey, is it about A, cannibals, B, canisters, or three, cannabis? And <laughs> you would be surprised <laughs> by the amount of people who didn't get that right. Okay, so at that point, you chuck those, right? <laughs> yes, so I discard that data. I'm, I'm into having bulletproof data. I don't want there to be, I don't want someone to make a huge monetary decision because of something that I told them was the case and then find out that the data quality wasn't good. Um, the vendor came back to me and said, well, you know, that, you know, it was kind of a trick question, you know, it kind of looks the same. But I mean, I had prefaced it by saying to see if you're reading. So I'm like, okay. I'll try this again. Absolutely. No, I think that's absolutely valid, and it's a great idea, to be quite honest so, with you. <laughs> the next time, two-thirds of the way through, on, the, on a similar topic, I said, I asked the question a, a third of the way through, and at the second, two-thirds of the way through, I said, when humans smoke, do they A, inhale, B, exhale, C, both, or D, neither? And again, I got a big chunk of people not getting that right. Um, so what I do is, um, and, and they were really mad at me for doing this actually, because it did make them look bad. And so what I do is I take anyone who answered incorrectly to both, no question, you know, like, you know, we're, we're humans, we make mistakes, but if you, if you get both wrong, you know, if you're answering that you believe that this survey is about cannibals who, exhale only. I don't want you in my data set, you know? Like, for real. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes complete sense. That is, and it's really cool. So as we wrap this up here, um, obviously, Laura, market research is necessary. And it doesn't matter where you're working, how you're working, what type of uh, company, uh, large or small. But can you share with our listeners a couple of tips of how you can ensure you've got a great market researcher uh, that you're working with, um, because it's definitely something that's typically outsourced, I mm -hmm. would guess. It's most companies are, don't have a full-time market research. Um, they'd have to be a decent size. And, and even the larger ones, I think, often outsource. Well, of course, I would first go to what's free, which is find someone in market research who's willing to consult with you, you know, give you 30 or 60 minutes of their time for free to talk through what, if any, market research they need that can be cost justified that's going to get them the return on investment. I would recommend they go to someone, ask if they're, um, if they're what's called methodologically agnostic, meaning they do qualitative research and quantitative research. Because just like if I have a problem and I go to an orthopedic surgeon, they're probably going to tell me I need surgery. You know, ideally, mm. you want to go to someone that doesn't have skin in the game for advising you on one or the other. Um, mm -hmm. And can you repeat what that is, the, that they do quantitative and quantitative qualitative? Quantitative research and qualitative research. Yeah, and you said ask if they are, there was if a word. they're methodologically agnostic. agnostic, 
methodologically and agnostic. I knew what those words were separately, and now I've learned Yeah, something. I mean, people don't, that's, it'll catch them off guard, but at least they'll know that you, you know, you know of what you're speaking with, and you're one of, if they just say, oh, I moderate focus groups, or oh, we just do surveys, then they're probably going to guide you to what it is that they do. So mm -hmm. even if it means setting up an appointment with one of the big players and agency that does both, you're better off finding out what the array of options are so then you can, you know, make sure you're on the right path and getting the right advice than going someplace where they're going to tell you um, a solution that's in their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, this has been exciting. I know when you say market research, you actually make it really super exciting and fun and cool because most people are like, uh, they want to get busy in doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really a great idea to stop, like you said, and pause and ensure that you're on the right track so that you can have a cost effective, you know, not only in the market research and making sure you're not wasting money, um, but then also in your product and or service and who it, it wants it, where are they? How do you find that ideal client? And then you get to the point, okay, how am I going to promote to them? And I really think without this nucleus, that is pretty much, um, you know, like you said, throwing spaghetti against a wall and see if it sticks. And I always say, you know, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. But if you actually look at it, Simon Sinek talks about this in his TED Talk, uh, Start With Why, that when he talks about in the law of diffusion of innovations, 110 years of marketing mm -hmm. research, that's what our assessment is based off of, largest body of marketing research ever. You can trip over 10% of the market just because they get it. Or you can end up completely not understanding it and, and lose out like Betamax, mm -hmm. right? So, so understanding that and so that you can really focus on the market itself and be able to take uh, as much market share as you can by differentiating your product based off of what people want. Laura, how are Laura? Sorry about that. <laughs> Earlier we said, oh, people always say our names wrong. Yeah, that's so, okay. Uh, I'm, I, I, that's funny. All these years, I'm very used to it. I'm just... Oh, you know what? My maiden name was Lingvar. I, I don't think anybody my entire life said it correctly. I was like, if it just sounded wrong, I just answered to it. So, and my first name is Carla with a K. So and I'll even say Car Carla, K-A, and people will write C. It's like, I don't fault them for it. It's because that's the way it, you know, you see it often and frequently. But how can our listeners get a hold of you, Laura? Uh, well, I would encourage them rather than, you know, going through the website and uh, or calling me, I think email's easiest. So, I'd say Lara, which is L-A-R-A at FordisConsulting.com. And, um, you know, my, my mission is to get people the ROI they need. So if for whatever reason um, I cannot help them, I can certainly get them in touch with a resource who can and at least guide them in the right direction. Because I just believe we're, you know, we all want everybody to succeed. My success shouldn't mean someone else's lack of success. And if people did a better job of differentiating themselves, I think that more people could exceed, you know, could succeed in this space and do so ethically and cost effectively and feeling good about what they do when they go to bed at night. That they're not attacking someone else, they're just highlighting what makes them special and different. 
Well, that's awesome. Thank you again so sure. much for being on the show, Laura. This was awesome. Anytime. And, you know, hey, Carl, you know, if you have any questions whatsoever, don't hesitate to call me. I really love being a thought partner and I'm happy to talk to you or anybody. Yeah, anybody. I, I've got a feeling we got a couple of deals we'll be working okay, on. Okay, well, that sounds great. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You have a great day. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.